0: Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the first chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 1. We've been able to spend some time on idols of the heart. We've been able to look at some specific idols and many of you have asked, are we going to cover the idol of and just fill in the blank? It's, it's so fun when I hear those comments because... I wonder what the idols are that we are struggling with collectively. And the reality is we could talk about the idol of anything and everything. We can turn anything into an idol. We all know that. We all feel that. We all begin to worship, love, trust, and obey something other than Christ, and therefore we turn it into an idol. A 17th century preacher in England named David Clarkson, preached a sermon on idolatry in our hearts. The sermon title was called Soul Idolatry Excludes Men from Heaven. I appreciate that title. You know where that comes from. That comes from 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, Do you not know? Do not be deceived. Neither idolaters nor covetous will enter the kingdom of heaven. So he refers to those that are actually practicing idolatry as in worshiping a false God, bowing down to a graven image. But then he also says covetous, which we know Paul from Colossians says that covetousness equals idolatry. So he's talking about both. Whether you are actually worshiping a graven image or whether you are worshiping something other than God in your own heart, the reality is if that is habitual in your life, if you are characterized by that without repentance... Paul says that we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The grace that's found in that passage is when Paul says, but such were some of you. You've been changed, you've been washed, you've been regenerated. The new birth has taken place in your life. But the reality is, in this sermon, David Clarkson said, though few will own it, nothing is more common than idols in our souls. Nothing's more common. Though few would say, yes, I worship idols... Nothing in reality is more common. He went on to say, if we think of our souls as a house, if our souls are a house, idols are set up in every room and in every faculty. Idols are set up everywhere. That's why John Calvin said, the heart is indeed an idol factory. It just produces idols. We've covered three main types of idolatry, the idol of money, the idol of greed, with the rich young ruler and what we called the rich old ruler in Zacchaeus. We've covered the idol of love and the idol of affection, the idol of um, relationships and longing to be loved. We looked at Genesis 29 with Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And we've also seen the idol of glory, the idol of pride, success, power, influence with Nebuchadnezzar and Naaman. There are so many others we could talk about. I have a list here of... Others that we could talk about. You could be craving any sort of material thing. You could be craving love from any person, anything. You could crave relationships. We can make an idol out of specific circumstances. I wish that I had this happening. A specific job. Um, we can make an idol out of personal comforts. We can make an idol out of even having a Christian family. You can do. You can desire that so much, a very good thing, that you turn it into a god thing. So it becomes a bad thing, as you're coveting and craving. That alone, we can make an idol out of sports. I was tempted to preach on the idol of sports. Um, It's an enormous idol in our culture today. It's an enormous idol even in our church. Um, It's an idol everywhere. I want to reiterate that, again, I, I I love sports. I love competition. It's a gift from God. It really is. But God's gifts make terrible gods. God's gifts make absolutely terrible gods. When we turn his gracious gifts into all-consuming gods in our lives, we are ruined because they cannot succeed in providing us what only God can. Anything you want badly enough, anything that you will love, trust, and obey over Christ, whatever it is, can become an idol. So, Instead of diving into more specific idols, I want to take two Sundays to look at finding and replacing our idolatry, the the idols in our hearts. Uh, Originally, I was going to do this in one sermon. That's why you have the sermon title, Finding and Replacing Idols. I was going to put this all together, how to discern them and how to get rid of them. And as I was studying and as I was just kind of writing, um, what was one sermon kind of became two, and I think it'll work that way. We'll talk about discerning our idols this morning. We'll talk about replacing them next week and And then we will kind of put this series to rest. But in Romans chapter 1, I wanted to start by looking at a passage that I know is familiar to us that will outline again the reality of the severity of this issue. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, so everyone who... "...sees his creation, sees his invisible attributes because of creation, sees his eternal power and divine nature. God is clearly seen and understood through what has been made. They are without excuse, for even though, verse 21, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. One of the interesting things about this passage, and we could keep on going, but one of the interesting things that this passage teaches us is that idolatry is not one sin among many, but rather idolatry is what is fundamentally wrong with human hearts. It's not that our idols of our hearts are one sin, and then we struggle with other things, and we struggle with other things, and we struggle with other things. Idolatry is the fundamental struggle In our hearts, if I could say it this way, I would say it. Idolatry is the only reason why we do anything wrong, why we ever sin. Martin Luther, in his treatise on good works, said the Ten Commandments begin with a commandment against idolatry. Why does this come first? Because the fundamental motivation behind law breaking or behind sinning, the fundamental motivation behind sinning is idolatry. And then he says this, we never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. We never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. Why do we fail to love selflessly or to serve unconditionally? Why do we fail? Because we are sinners. Yes, absolutely. And those are sins. But the answer is much deeper than that. There's something we are craving and so we are sinning to get it. Or there's something that we have that we're sinning to keep. Therefore, idolatry is an enormous issue that touches every area of our lives. The question is not, do I have any idols in my heart? The question is, what are the idols that are in my heart? So I want to do two things this morning. I want to be very practical and give you kind of some diagnostic questions about dealing with idols in your heart. And then we're going to look to the scriptures to see Jesus drawing out idols in people's hearts First, some diagnostic questions. How do we figure out what we are worshiping other than God? How do we figure out what we are craving in such a way that it has become an idol? Let me give you some questions. Number one, you can ask this question. What am I wanting that I'm not getting? What am I wanting that I'm not getting? When you see your emotions flare up, when you see you have a temper, or you are angry, or you are bitter... A good question to ask is, what am I wanting right now that I'm not getting? Because that thing has become the idol. You have sinned to try and get that thing, or you have sinned because you couldn't get that thing. Maybe in a marriage, all you're wanting is reconciliation with your spouse. That's not a bad thing. That's a very good thing. But when it becomes a God thing, you will do anything to get it. Maybe in desiring to be reconciled and your spouse is not wanting that and is pushing you away, maybe you become very angry and frustrated and embittered. A good question to figure out what's going on is what am I getting right now that I'm not wanting? Um, I'm getting somebody who's turned away from me. I'm getting an unreconciled partner. Or flip it around. Question number two. um, What am I getting that I'm not wanting? Did I give that one to you already? What am I wanting that I'm not getting? And what am I getting now that I'm not, that I'm not wanting. Uh, it's a good way to flip it. And these are, Paul David Tripp gives these questions in counseling sessions. What is it that I'm wanting that is not being given to me, that I'm not getting, that I would fight for? And what is being given to me that I am definitely not wanting? Whenever you see unbiblical responses, those are the questions to ask. That's what I ask myself constantly. When I feel I'm getting angry at something, I ask, what is it that I'm getting right now that I'm not wanting and what am I wanting that I'm not getting? That helps bring out the idolatry in our hearts. Another way to ask this would be this. Um, you You can look at your desires and you can ask these questions. What are you willing to sin to get? What are you willing to sin to get? What is it that you want so badly that it's okay for you to sin in your own mind, in your own heart? You would rationalize sinning to get it. Or what desire will you sin because you don't get it? Again, similar question, but if you're, if you're not getting something, what will you be happy to sin because you're not getting it? Or what will you sin to keep once you have it? Maybe it's money, so you'd be happy to cheat on your taxes to keep that money and not give it away to Caesar which we are supposed to do the reality is all of these questions can diagnose in your heart what is it that I'm truly living for what is truly motivating me what is truly um, the motivating factor behind my desires and behind my actions i want to give you four more and these are from a, a pastor named Tim Keller these are very helpful he has an amazing book called counterfeit gods it's a little book um, a lot of what we've covered has been uh, founded in that book it's very very helpful He has these four questions about discerning the idols that are in our hearts. Number one, what do you daydream about? What do you daydream about? Look to your imagination. What is your imagination filled with? What preoccupies your mind when you have nothing to think about? Obviously, one or two daydreams are no indication of idolatry, but when it becomes habitual... Uh, we would use the word obsessions when it's all you're thinking about. What What is it that you are daydreaming about? Maybe it's being somewhere else. Maybe it's doing something else. Maybe it's being with somebody else. What are your daydreams about? William Temple, a pastor, says it this way. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. What do you habitually think about in those quiet moments That would bring you the most joy and the most comfort in the privacy of your own heart. What do you daydream about? Number two, what do you spend your money on? This is actually from Jesus, right? Matthew 6, 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You can tell what you love by what you spend your money on. Your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. What is it that you love? You'll pay money to get it. So where does your money go? What is your pattern of spending? Our our pattern of spending, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in giving to the church reveals that our hearts are concerned about the work of the ministry. So our pattern of spending absolutely reveals the idols that are in our hearts. Question number three, what are your most uncontrollable emotions? Go to those painful places in your life where you are... Absolutely saddened, depressed, frustrated, angry, seething. Look at those moments when things aren't going your way. When you're angry, ask the question, is there something that is so important to me that I am sinning to have it, to get it, to keep it? When you're in despair, what is it that is causing this despair? What am I wanting that I'm not getting that is causing this despair or this depression? Pull your idols out by the roots of your emotions. They are great diagnostics to what's going on. Your emotions betray what your idols are. Fourth and finally, what is your real daily functional salvation? So we have what is it you daydream about? What is your imagination tending towards? What do you spend your money on? What are your most uncontrollable emotions and what's the root of those? You can kind of trace back the fruit to the root And then finally, what is your real, daily, functional salvation? Another way to say it is, what is it that you are living for? What are you living for? A good way to ask that question of our hearts is, when you are praying, and the answer comes back very clearly from the Lord, no, there are times where it's like, okay, it's your will. God, you do whatever you want. I was asking for this, and you're not giving me this. Okay, blessed be the name of the Lord. Then there are other times where that thing is everything that we're wanting, and we're praying, and we're praying, and we're praying, and he says no, and we lose it. That's a a key defining factor that, you know what, that thing is our idol and not God himself. We aren't worshiping God and God alone. We are praying for something that we thought would satisfy us, and when God says, no, I'm not going to give it to you, we're second-guessing his goodness because that is the thing that was going to take care of us and satisfy us. We see this just amazingly done in, in the book of Jonah. Um, Jonah would be happy if the, if the Ninevites died. First of all, he would be happy if he never went to the Ninevites. But he has to go. Then he would be happy if they were dead. He hates the Ninevites. But instead of dying, all he wants is to sit on the hill and watch God's wrath be poured out upon this, this town, this city. But instead of that, they repent And God blesses and grants favor. And so what happens to Jonah? He's angry. And as he's angry, he says, surely God's done something wrong. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. Falls asleep, wakes up. There's a beautiful bush that's um, overflowing. that's coming over his head, over his body, that's shading him from the sun. And he thinks, God is repenting. He's asking my forgiveness for doing something wrong and not destroying the Ninevites. And then when God says, no, that's not what that was about. That was about grace and favor and undeserved favor, even though you are worthy of death too and worthy of the sun beating down on you, I'm going to go ahead and shade you and cover you and give you grace. And then he wakes up again and the the worms have eaten the tree and he gets mad again. It's constant um, flux of emotions. All he wanted, he was not getting. And so he was angry about it. David Pallison says it this way the most basic question which po- which God poses to each human heart is this has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust preoccupation loyalty service fear and delight questions bring some of people's idols systems to the surface to what or whom do you look for for life-sustaining stability security acceptance what do you really want and expect out of life what really makes you happy what would make you an acceptable person where do you look for power and success these questions or similar ones tease out whether we serve god or idols whether we look for salvation from christ or from false saviors they tease those things out I want to look at a passage now. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. I want to look at a passage where Jesus himself teases out, so to speak, the idols in people's hearts. I alluded to this passage, I think, in the first message in this series. But I want to look at it in detail because this is really the idol of self. And this is really where all of our idols spring from. We want something because we are self-serving. We want something because we want to make much of ourselves and not live to make much of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 9, we would meet three would-be followers of Jesus Christ. To each of these followers, Jesus says something very hard and something very sweet. But we have to understand what he's asking them to do when he says, come and follow me. We have to understand in its context. If you go to verse um, 51, turn to verse 51 of Luke chapter nine says, when the days were approaching for Jesus's ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Some of your translations might say he set his face to Jerusalem. He's going for the purpose of dying. He's going for the purpose of being crucified in our place. And so as he's asking others to follow him, he's asking them to follow him to his death. He's not saying, follow me to paradise. He's not saying, follow me to my kingdom when I'm going to establish it. He's saying, I'm going to die. Come and follow me. Three times in the passage we're going to look at in verses 57 through 62, three times the word follow is used to describe a disciple of Jesus Christ. But there is a nuance to what Jesus is saying every time he says, follow me. Two words, two nuances. Follow. You can kind of put it in capital letters, follow, and then lowercase letters, me. Then you can also put follow in lowercase letters and capital letters, me. Two emphasis. God is asking us to follow. You can't just sit back and watch Jesus do what he's doing. You need to get up. You need to follow him. You need to move with him. But you're not following Um, blindly, someone who's not going to follow with you or somebody who's not going to lead you. He's saying, follow, you need to do work, but you're following me and I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There is Jesus, there is me, there's the mission, there's a person, there's a path, there's sweetness, there's suffering. As Jesus says, follow me, we must hear two things in that. You have a mission to do, but you're following after me. And I'll be with you. He does this a lot. Great commission. Um, There is a commission. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. But it's bookended by, I have all authority and I will be with you forever. Mission, me. So when you hear that phrase, follow me, there's a lot that Jesus is asking them to do. But what is he doing here specifically? Let's read these verses and you'll see Jesus is doing a lot. We know when God does one thing, he does a billion things and there's a lot that's going on. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. What is Jesus doing here? He's doing two things. He's teaching and he's testing. He's teaching that the Calvary Road would be an extremely difficult one. And for anyone to truly follow Jesus, they must know that from the get go. He's teaching this is a difficult path. And to follow me is not an easy thing. He's also testing. He's testing by simply asking the question, am I worth it? Do you believe that I am worth it? Do you really love me above all these other things? Do you really treasure me above all else? Jesus is testing how much they treasure the you and I will follow you by telling them what the follow is going to cost them. He's testing them. So there are two things going on in this passage and I believe there are two things going on in this room right now. Jesus is teaching us and he's testing us. He's asking us, he's going to get at the idols in our hearts and he's going to teach us, you know, what? you need to set those things aside and follow me. If you would follow me. He's asking us this morning to join him, to follow him. And he's promising that he will be with us as we follow him. He's not going to tell us, follow me, uh, but actually I'm going to chill here and watch you do the hard work. No, he's going to establish the way he's going to pioneer as we started the whole series in hebrews chapter 12 he is the author he's the pioneer and he's the finisher the perfecter of our faith so he is teaching us what the calvary road looks like and he is testing us to see if he is truly our treasure alone he's testing us to see what our idols are three people let's look at them verse 57 we meet the first person he initiates someone says to jesus As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die, someone says to him, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. We can kind of hear a little bit of Peter. This isn't Peter, but we can kind of hear a little bit of Peter, right? Lord, they will all fall away. They will all deny you, but I will not, no matter what comes. Kind of a little bit of that cockiness here, right? I will follow you wherever you go. Maybe it should have been, Lord, can I follow you and give me strength to go wherever you go? No, no, I I know I'm going to follow you and I will follow you wherever you go. And so Jesus tests. He tests that. Verse 58, he says to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I think that modern evangelical um, you know, Church gurus would say this was a terrible response if you're wanting followers and disciples. If somebody says, I want to follow you, Jesus, what's the answer? Yes, pray the prayer, be baptized, come on, follow me, make disciples, start the race, let's do this. He doesn't even answer him. He doesn't say, well, thank you very much, that's a great idea, but no, I don't think so. He dives right into testing. In essence, he answers by saying, Really? Do you really want to follow me? Because if you follow me, let it be known. You're not going to have a home. You're not going to have a place where you can call your own. As we read these, I want to be careful. I want to understand these words. These are hard words, but let's not make them harder than they are supposed to be. Okay, let's be careful. Um, We we could potentially read this and say, well, I have a home. I laid my head on a pillow last night. Am I a follower of Jesus? (laughs) No, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not going to say here, um, to be a follower of Jesus, you must not own a home. You must not have a bed. You must never go to a funeral. Uh, You must never second guess or have doubts. That's not what he's saying. We need to understand these words in light of, I believe a very helpful illustration is the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. Remember, they were back to back. We studied them with the idol of money, with the idol of greed. The rich young ruler, Jesus says, how much does he have to give away? All. If you want to follow me, you need to give away all of your possessions. Zacchaeus then, just a couple paragraphs later, says to Jesus, I have given half of my possessions to the poor. And Jesus doesn't say, "Uh uh-uh, I said all to this kid and you need to give everything away. No, he's testing the rich young ruler saying, you have to give it up. You have to surrender everything. And the rich young ruler goes away sad. But Zacchaeus, by giving half, Jesus says, today I tell you the truth. This man, salvation has come to his house because it's obvious that his idol is gone. He's relinquished his idol. No more is it money. No more is it greed. It's obvious he's let it go. So it's fine if he only gives away half. There's no rule. There's no, you must give everything away. So you must understand these hard words in verses 57 through 62 in light of Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. He's testing. So let's not take it as law. Let's not take it as, okay, if you ever go to a funeral, you're sinning. That's not at all what he's saying. The point of Luke 9 is not if you have a bed or if you have a pillow or if you go to a funeral, then you're not saved. That's not the point. The point is this. Jesus knows your idols. And he's going to get at them as often as he can to pull them to the surface and say, do you trust me? Do you follow me? Do you treasure me? Do you cherish me? Or do you cherish your things? So verse 58 with the first person who says, I want to follow you. Jesus says, really? Are you sure? The second person, Jesus initiates with him. Verse 59, he says, follow me. It's a commandment. Come follow me. But this man says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Seems reasonable. Verse 60, but he said to him. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. There are things that Jesus says that sometimes I just feel like we should apologize for him. You know, this is one of those where it's like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't think he meant that. This is a hard saying. Again, he's getting at this man's heart. And obviously the king of the universe knows exactly how to do that better than anyone. There's no reason to apologize for his words because his words are life-giving words. What's happening here? There's really two main options of what's happening. It's kind of a tricky, clunky passage. There's a man, there's a son who has a father who's either dead or he's about to die. The, The first way that this could be taken is that the father is actually dead and the son is waiting for the second burial. What would happen in Jewish customs, Jewish culture is You would bury the person, you'd wrap them up, you'd bury them, and in about a year their body would decompose and you would just be left with bones. And then you'd put those bones into a bone box. The technical name is an ossuary. You'd put them into a bone box, You'd have another type of a funeral, and then you'd bury that bone box with other family bone boxes and put them together. I don't know if you remember, I think it was probably seven or eight, maybe ten years ago, that we actually found the bone box of Caiaphas in Jerusalem. And it said, this is Caiaphas, the high priest, and we trace it back to, you know what, this is probably the bones, the remains, the ossuary of the high priest Caiaphas, Um, from the Passion of Jesus Christ, from the Passion Week. Um, Possibly we have the Bone Box of James, and um, that one we actually think is probably not the actual Bone Box of James, the brother of Jesus. But the bottom line is this could be this man saying, my father's already dead. And one of the reasons why we think this is because Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. He's already dead. No need to worry about a dead man. He's dead. Let the dead deal with their dead. It doesn't matter. Could be that. In that case, what is this man trying to do? Um, He's trying to receive the inheritance from his father and use it the way that he wants to, and then take care of his family, take care of the proceedings with the funeral. The second way that it could be taken is that his father isn't dead yet. And this man is saying, please wait until my father dies. He's close to death. Let me bury my father. The first burial, not the bone box burial. The first burial, let me wait until he passes away and then I want to give him a funeral and then I'll come follow. Uh, In that case, when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, it's probably a reference to this is a worldly thing you're looking at. This is something that doesn't ultimately matter. So let worldly, spiritually dead people take care of worldly, spiritually dead issues. It doesn't matter. Instead, you go proclaim spiritually life giving things, proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. Either way, option one or option number two, both is seeking the same thing, the inheritance that his father is going to be able to give him. Sure, there's an element of taking care of your family, and sure there's an element of that. And again, please, we must be careful. This is not totally fine to dishonor your family. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus knows this man's idolatry. And so he simply says, you know what? Would you be willing, in essence, would you be willing to give up what your father is going to give you If he hasn't died already, if he's going to die and give you the inheritance money, are you willing to let it go and not receive it? That's what he's dealing with. That's what he's diving into. That's what he's testing. We don't find out what happens to him. We don't find out what happens to the other one as well. But that's our second would-be follower. Number three would-be follower. Verse 61, another also. And at this point, this is gutsy. I mean, I give this guy credit. We've already heard follower number 1, follower number 2 would be followers and Jesus kind of says harsh things and this man decides, you know what? I'm brave enough today. I'm feeling good. Had had a good breakfast, ready to go. I will follow you, Lord, but before I do, first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus says to him, "No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Don't don't begin and then stop. Don't start and quit. Don't don't say, I will follow you, and then say, no, I don't want any of it. Don't look back. Don't look back. Jesus knows in all three of these people's hearts what is perfectly competing in their hearts for their affections for Jesus Christ. He knows. He knows. He knows that the first guy is Looking for comfort. Maybe it's the idol of comfort, the idol of a home, the idol of power and success. And Jesus says, are you willing to be homeless to follow me? The second, looking for money, looking for pleasure, wanting to be able to spend money on whatever he wants to spend money on. And Jesus says, are you willing to be poor and bankrupt to follow me? The last one just wants options. Indecisive discipleship. I just want to be able to take you and leave you whenever I want to. And Jesus says, no, you need to follow me and me alone. The reality in all of these questions or all these would-be followers is this is the question. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Jesus knows that all of our joys have a foundation except for one. All of the things that we love have a foundation except for one. They all end up going down to one foundation that has no bottom. It is the last bottom motivation and foundation. For instance, let's say you have a son who goes to college, gets an A on an exam, comes home, shows you, and is super excited. And you ask the question, why are you excited about getting an A on your exam? Why are you excited? He's filled with joy. He's happy. But now we're going to start figuring out why. Why do you do what you do? Why are you excited? Why are you happy about what you're happy about? So why are you happy? Um, Well, because getting a a good grade on an exam will give me um, a good GPA and maybe I'll be successful in the business world. Okay, why do you want to be successful in the business world? Uh, Well, because my family was always poor and I'm terrified of, not having enough money to take care of my family. Okay, why are you terrified of that? Because I'm afraid of what people would think of me. I mean, you're just asking questions. It's like when you go to you go to a, a car mechanic and you say, my car's making a noise, okay? What's the noise? You always try and describe it. Those those would make the best ringtones, in my opinion, of trying to describe the noise that a car might make. Can you explain what the noise would be? Well, it's kind of a, with a, and a, you know, it's that. Okay, what is that? I just wonder sometimes these poor car mechanics, how am I supposed to identify what the problem is with the car based on that noise? Let let me just drive it. So they drive it. They ask more questions. They start diving deeper into it. You can't just take your car to the mechanic and they just look at it and go, I know what's wrong. Sometimes, if it's obvious, your car's blown up, I know what's wrong. (laughs) We, We could figure that out. But it takes questions. Let me drive it. Let me hear it. Let me open the hood. Let me figure some things out. I have to figure this out. I have to go deeper. Jesus knows that, and He knows that ultimately, we either do things for the glory of Jesus or for the glory of ourselves. That's the bottom. We only have two options. All of our joys um, have foundations except for one. When we finally get to the bottom, we get to I am doing this for myself or I am doing this for Christ. As CT Studd said, um, Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ truly matters. So when you're asking those questions, why do you do what you do? Why do you go to work? Oh, to provide for my family. Good. Why do you want to provide for your family? When you're honest with these questions, they start bringing out, is it because you want to be successful? Is it because you want to be seen by all your friends as having a life? Is it because you want to keep up with the Joneses? Or is it because you want to obey Jesus Christ? You want to disciple your kids? You want to disciple your wife? You want to do what God says is right and glorify him by being a hard worker, by being a good father, by being a loving husband. See, it looks the same to the world around us, but they're different motivations, And what Jesus does here is quickly he gets to the bottom. He gets to the the bottom level, the foundation, and he says, you're living for yourself. You're living for yourself. The new birth conversion is when we finally, ultimately say, I'm not living for myself anymore. When we crucify self, then we live for Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with living for self. That's the whole point of the series. We as believers still struggle with living for self. But these questions can draw out Why do we do the things we do? Ezekiel 36 is the beautiful promise where God says, I'm going to place a new heart in you to give you new affections, new desires. You can't manufacture those new desires, God needs to give those to you. So don't take offense at Jesus testing and drawing out the bottom foundation of these three followers. Don't take offense. Jesus is giving them life-giving words. He's saying, you are living for yourself. And if you live for yourself, you cannot follow me. And he asks us the same thing. Would you follow me? Are you living for yourself or are you living for me? No one after saying, I'm going to live for Jesus, can turn back and say, you know what? I don't want it. They can't, they're not fit for the kingdom. They cannot truly follow Jesus. The question is, is Jesus everything to you? Is he everything? Everything that we do, that's why I ask the question, why do we do what we do? Everything that we do must be answered with the the answer for the glory of God because I love Jesus. It has to be. It has to be. Now, the reality is there will be a thousand decisions that you will make in life that don't have one simple biblical command to settle the issue. There's going to be a thousand. Do I buy a Honda Accord or a Toyota Camry. The Bible doesn't say in James 2, buy Hondas alone. It doesn't say that. So the issue will come down to, in most of life, the issue will come down to, do you want Jesus above all, and how can you show him off in everything you do? Do you want Jesus above all, and how can you show him off in everything that you do? Do you want him? Matthew sixteen twenty four through 26, Jesus says to his disciples, If anybody wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, and he must follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Luke nine twenty three through 25 says the same thing. Do you want to follow Jesus? Now, these three would-be followers are looking at him saying, is it worth it? Is it worth it? But something happens in the new birth. Something happens when we realize it's worth it to sell all of our possessions. Matthew 13:44. It's worth it to sell everything we have to gain Christ. That beautiful parable of the man finding the treasure in the field. And because of his joy, he gives away everything that he has to say, I want Jesus. That's the issue. So practically, how can we discern our idols? We can discern them by putting them up next to Jesus and saying, am I going to follow Jesus if I don't have this? Or am I only, am I only going to follow Jesus if I get this? That's you know prosperity gospel. I'm going to follow Jesus to get the money, to get the health, to get the wealth, to get whatever I want. Am I going to follow Jesus because I follow Jesus, because I get Jesus? I want Jesus. Or am I going to follow Jesus to get something? We need to deny ourselves. John MacArthur says, you need to disown yourself. The word deny is used to describe refusing association with someone. You need to refuse to associate with yourself. You need to refuse to associate with yourself. It's pretty extreme. It's used of rejecting companionship of someone where you literally do not want their company so that you come to Christ. And here's the first thing. You come saying, I can no longer stand to be associated with myself. I've had it with me. I don't want anything more of my own life. It's not. I like my life and I like my world and I like the direction I'm going. But Jesus, could you move me up a little faster and a little higher? Can you help me? I'll just take a little bit of Jesus. It's not about that. It's about Quote, I've had it with everything that I am. I am sick of my naturally depraved, impotent, sinful self, and I disown myself. I desire never to be associated with myself the way that I once was. I've had it with me. And so, self is totally cast away. I'm overwhelmed with my emptiness. I'm overwhelmed with my failure. I'm overwhelmed with my disappointment. I'm overwhelmed with my sinfulness, and I throw self away. I give up all dependence upon myself, all trust in myself, all confidence in what I am by nature. I give up everything and anything and follow Jesus. End quote. Here's another couple ways to say it. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means to Deny yourself is the controlling principle of your life. It means to cease to be your own God in your own life. It, see, it, it is defined by declaring lifelong war on your own ego. J.I. Packer says that. I love that. It means not simply denying certain things, but denying personal control of your life. It means letting go of self-determination and replacing it with obedience to the Master. It's the death of you, your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your desires, that bottom level that was living for self. You say, no, I'm living for Jesus in everything that I do. You must give up everything. And the reality is, in what Jesus is saying, if you hold on to anything, then you won't be able to make it. You won't be able to make it. So how do you discern idols? Get close to Jesus. Get close to Jesus. He will say words to you like these that will draw out what you're truly living for. What are you living for? Why do you do what you do? Why do you say the things that you say? Is it for Christ or is it for you? We have some diagnostic questions at the beginning, practical helps. I encourage us to go away from here and ask these things in our families, and our Friendships. Examine yourself, test yourself, but can I just plead with all of us? We need to examine ourselves and test ourselves very harshly. We need to be critical of ourselves. Now, don't be critical of others. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brothers. Be critical, but not so much to the point where you become fearful or doubt. You need to be critical of yourself in light of the grace of God. If Can I, can I just say it this way? If, as you stare at yourself and you see idols rising to the surface, if it makes you want to run away from God, we're doing something wrong. That's what Adam and Eve did, right? They sinned, they tried to run away from God instead of what Jesus pleads with us to do, which is when you sin, run to him. The grace of God has been given so that we run to him saying, please forgive because I know you do. I know you have grace. I know you have nothing but love for me. I hate my sin. I hate myself. I don't want to follow these idols anymore. I want to follow you and you alone, and I'm struggling to do that. But that's why I run to you. I'm not going to run away from you because I'm ashamed. I'm not going to run away from you because I think I can handle it on my own. I'm going to follow you, and that means I'm going to run to you. Even now, I'm going to run to you. Is Jesus worth it? That's the question. Is Jesus worth it? And my... My prayer, as we study God's word, is you will see, you know what? There are some amazing things in this life. But as we saw in Genesis 29, if you make anything but God an idol, you will wake up to Leah every morning. You will wake up and realize this did not satisfy every morning. But if you follow Jesus, oh, the road might be difficult. It's hard work. It's not for the faint of heart. It's difficult. But every morning when you realize you have mercies that have been given to you from the God of the universe, you have new mercies every day. You have a beautiful Savior who loves you with an unconditional love, grace that is not dependent upon what you have done, what you will do, what you do right now. You wake up to everlasting mercies. You wake up to a God that you will want to continue to follow. You will. Father, I pray that as we study your word, whether it's this morning, whether it's in the weeks and months and even years to come, if you would, tarry, I pray every Sunday would be a, a morning where we realize again and again you are worth it. God, there are so many things about heaven that we look forward to. A new body that doesn't break, that doesn't have problems. Seeing our friends that have passed away. Seeing family members. Having a mansion. Having streets of gold. Seeing the angels that have the six pairs of wings. Never dying. Never sinning. Seeing the apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and getting to talk with Moses and David. There are so many amazing things about heaven, but God, make us understand that if Jesus isn't there, it's not heaven at all. None of those things will matter. And if Jesus is the only thing that we have in heaven, that he's enough, that he would satisfy us for all of eternity. And that he has called us to follow him in the here and now. And eternal life is this, that we would know you. Even as we follow you this day, may we love Jesus and treasure him above all things. God, may we in our hearts be defiant against our sin. May we renounce self-reliance and deny ourselves and follow you and you alone. We pray in the name of Christ.